This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Filmmaker Don Porter's documentaries run the spectrum of the political world and process. She's done stuff on Bobby Kennedy's 1968 presidential campaign, the legacy of Congressman John Lewis, the Tulsa massacre, civil war spies, abortion, and much more. Her latest project, the miniseries Deadlocked, is a history of the modern Supreme Court, roughly from the Warren Court to the present, and how politics have changed the court and how the court has changed politics. Don, welcome back to Political Theater. Uh, we uh, had, a, had a great podcast a few years back when you did the Bobby Kennedy uh, miniseries for Netflix, and uh, your latest is on Showtime, Deadlocked. It's a four-part miniseries, and uh, it's currently airing. Uh, you, we don't have all the episodes out uh, yet, but let's uh, let's get into it. How did you come to this project? Because I'm, I'm always interested in, in a filmmaker and a documentarian. You have, there's so much to work with out there. What was it that pushed you in the direction of covering the Supreme Court, uh, the modern Supreme Court? Um, well, first, it's great to be back because um, we are all living in political theater. So uh, <laughs> it's a perfect place to be right now. Um, you know, my background is I'm a lawyer. Um, I practiced for five years in Washington, D.C., Baker Hostetler, I lived on Capitol Hill. I was literally swimming in the political theater and, and loving it. And so I'm always attracted to those stories. But um, I also had a stint at working at ABC News. Um, and there I met Vinny Malhotra, who was a producer on World News Tonight, Peter Jennings. Um, and Vinny was running Showtime documentaries. And so about three years ago, he just called me up and he said, you want to do something about the Supreme Court? <laughs> I said, yes, I do. Um, and, you know, it's hard to remember that, you know, a lifetime ago, three years ago, um, when I think there was really people really starting to focus on how the court uh, seemed to be changing and how the public's perception of the court um, was getting a lot more focused and seemed to be changing. And so we started, um, you really just, you know, kind of threw it out. So it's kind of a filmmaker's dream, like, all right, here's a topic. What do you want to do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started like every good law student geek was like, how about the confirmation process? Because I just, <laughs> it's like really, really, and I, you know, um, uh, I just was like kind of fascinated with how our confirmations had become such spectacle. And then as we started looking into them, I realized like, there really wasn't a lot kind of orienting people who are not lawyers, who are not everyday Supreme Court watchers about the structure of the court, the history of the court, how people are nominated, and then what they do once they get there. And so I thought Showtime was willing to give us, you know, a lot of real estate for something like this. They were going to give us four hours. So I thought, well, um, we could do something bigger. And, and really try and, and kind of ground people in some of this history. And so then the question then was like, oh, wow, it's a lot of history. Um, and so I thought, you know what we're not getting a lot of today is we're not remembering um, when the court was really this beacon of light, when people were really saying, 
you know, oh my goodness, look at what that body of people did. So, you know, that leads you right to the Warren court. Um, and so that's the court that gives you Brown v. Board of Education. It's the court that gives you the right to an attorney um, in Gideon v. Wainwright, which is my first film, Gideon's Army. Um, it's the court that gives you uh, Miranda warnings, the very famous, you have, you know, being read your rights. That comes out of Supreme Court decision. Um, of course, Roe v. Wade comes out of a Supreme Court decision. So I thought, why don't we kind of remind people of of this very famous, you know, period in court history, and then, you know, kind of march forward from there to today. And so that's what we do across the four hours. And one of the things that I I was sort of fascinated with is that um, I mean, you mentioned that the um, the the process itself and the and the justices have never had the same kind of platform as, say, the president or, or Congress, but their decisions, I mean, particularly their paramount, you know, decisions like Brown versus Board or Roe versus Wade have these far-reaching consequences for all Americans, you know, for, for the way people live. Um, and but the it, it's interesting that the the court we'll get into this a little bit about how it becomes more and more and more political and and interwoven into the political process but one of the things i i really appreciated was that uh when when you get into the early years of the warren court how the politics were always a little bit there they were on the periphery they were nothing like it, it is now where we're so divided and it's such a spectacle but you 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 know you you show these uh, these, these moments from Thurgood Marshall's confirmation process, uh, and in in 1965, and just how rough uh, it was, and it was it was a spectacle, not quite the spectacle say of the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, but but it was it was something that that you see the genesis of it, the early early roots of these things as public spectacle, people trying to sort of make an example of a justice or to lift them up. Uh, and it, it, it's always, it's always a little bit there, but then, you know, you get, it gets into overdrive obviously as, as the, as we get closer to modern, more, more contemporary times. And you know, that, that is why I was really fascinated with the confirmation process and kind of, you know, like kind of swimming around in, in those, in that footage for a while. Um, and so what you also see is the potential for abuse. Um, and so Marshall was really abused in his, he had two separate confirmation experiences. One, when, you know, Kennedy nominates him to be solicitor general. Um, and so he has to be confirmed for that position. He actually serves in that position for more than a year because he can't get confirmed. Um, and so he's, he's really kind of pummeled because when you, you know, the, the first thing to, to think about and to focus on what I wanted to remind people is it, it should not be a surprise that this is a political process and and the kind of divisions in the court should not be a surprise to us when we think about where we are as a country politically. The, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, it's the person in charge wins. The president of the United States gets to nominate people to be justices. That's how they get there. So that means the party in power gets to make those choices, right? So, but the Senate, the other elected body, gets to confirm. And that's part of our, it's supposed to be part of our system of checks and balances. So if we have a Senate that is at odds with a president, you get to where we are today, which is this kind of 
stalemate, this deadlock, if you will, and you see those that conflict being fought. Um, but um, you know, despite that, and this is also, I think, part of the message of the series is we have that system has remained in place for better or for worse um, for several hundred years, and it has in the past worked out. So it's not the system's fault. It is our fault if it's not working. Um, and so, you know, always reminding people that um, our elected officials are elected. Uh, the Supreme Court is not elected, but our officials who are placing and, and constituting that body are. And it, it seems like one of the, you know, you know, kind of main takeaways, at least that I that I took from not just your your series, but also just being a, an observer of of. Uh, of Congress and the Supreme Court, and particularly of judicial nominations from you know 2015 on, is that there there is typically this ebb and flow um, of of the way the court changes and evolves. And you know we we have some very stable times, uh, like the years between uh, Stephen Breyer's confirmation in 1995 to um, to when Sandra Day O'Connor and Rehnquist uh, you know Rehnquist died, Sandra Day O'Connor retired. But there's an 11 year period of time of, of relative stability. But in general, you know we have these you know a natural sort of evolution where presidents of different parties pick people uh, to, to serve on the Supreme Court. It doesn't always work out the way they thought they may have um, uh, ruled, but there, but there's, an, a, there's a way that the court sort of settles itself or settles into modes of function. And when, when Antonin Scalia died and Merrick Garland was nominated by Barack Obama to take his place and Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader at the time, said, no, we're going to wait until the election that really disrupted the natural process of the court sort of reconfiguring. And then fast forward to 2020 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and McConnell speeds up the process, sort of the antithesis of what he did in 2016 to confirm Amy Coney Barrett. It changes the balance in such a way that that would not have happened in previous eras where, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a black man, you know, uh, is replaces Abe Fortas, you know, and or something, you know, along those lines. And so, I, or or a Kennedy, you know, an, an Anthony Kennedy comes on board and is this sort of wild card. It doesn't seem like there are any wild cards mm-hmm. left out there. Um, you know, what you're pointing to is um, why I love documentary and why it's really important that we had as much time as we had to trace this history, because what you see, you know, McConnell, um, McConnell's. Uh, you know, kind of influence starts way before that. It start it goes back to where uh, Judge Bork is not um, uh, is not confirmed, and right. you see a very young Mitch McConnell taking to the well of the Senate. We have this in the series, and he yep. essentially vows that he will not confirm um, uh, judges. You know, who are are when there's this this close of a of a contest that he's not going to do it. And then so you fast, he says it. And so you see him in the series saying, we, c- we can sure shoot him down. And he vows essentially retribution for the, the uh, Senate's fairy that are nominated to confirm Judge Bork, who's a conservative judge. And so then when we get to um, Barack Obama, it's 263 days before the next election. 
and he won't give Mitch he won't give Merrick Garland a hearing, not even a hearing. So we get no vote, and that shows you the power of the Senate, which goes back to my we elect those people, and so if they're going to do their jobs honorably, um, we do what we say in that. But then you see Amy Coney Barrett is not just confirmed um, before the next election. It's 23 days when we're already voting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. 263 days um, for one. And he says, no, we've got to wait to the next president, 23 days for the next. But the other thing is he doesn't care. He knows that that he's completely reversing himself and he doesn't care. And, and I think... Um, what are the differences of today? You know, you talk about our checks and balances and our, our political power, and that's to be expected. The other really important disruption is Donald Trump's decision to essentially uh, uh, take the Federalist Society and outsource the choices of justices. And so what you get is one non-elected special interest group curating the Supreme Court. And so that you get these justices who have are pretty much voting in lockstep along ideology rather than a, a traditional interpretation of law. And that's what feels so out of step with our current government. So historically, you might have people or your judges who vote lots of different ways, um, but they're judges. They're not ideologues first. They're judges first. And now you have um, the Federalist Society essentially, I mean, you basically take an oath <laughs> to um, right. abide by their principles. And those are the judges that we have who've been confirmed today. What was the most surprising thing or interesting thing that came out of your research for this? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you're you're a lawyer by training. You worked on the Hill. I mean, you worked with Baker Hostetler. I mean, like you're, you were, uh, you know, uh, you're one of those people who would have been able to yeah, you would have been able to name, you know, more than one Supreme Court justice, which is beyond, you know, like most people, uh, you know, who are who are polled. I mean, it, it is a branch of government that is is the least known. Uh, but again, I I learned, you know, some stuff. I think the most interesting thing I learned uh, may be that that John Paul Stevens, when he was nominated by Gerald Ford in 1975, two years after Roe versus Wade, was not asked a single question about abortion uh, in his confirmation hearing. It was settled. It was done. Uh, and then, you know, we've got a bunch of people um, making it, making abortion the preeminent sort of litmus test issue later on, uh, the Paul Weyricks of the world and so forth. Uh, so that was interesting to me. I didn't know that. What was the most interesting thing uh, or interesting things that, that you got out of your research uh, for this project? Yeah, there there were um, many. And, you know, you're, you're right. Like, I am a Supreme Court. I'm a, I'm a, a lot of ways, like a secret legal geek. I mean... You know, when I lived in I've, DC, I've read, I've read Five Chiefs by John Paul Stevens. <laughs> okay, you win. <laughs> but um, you know, when I lived here and I was a young lawyer, um, I went to a, you know, there's all these like legal receptions, and we go around and we're all wearing the same suit, and we talk to each other, and um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg walks in, and I went, "Ah, it's my favorite Supreme Court justice." And my friend said, "You have a favorite." um so um yeah i you know i thought i knew quite a bit um you know certainly always stuff to learn but so a couple of things 
One is that Earl Warren had no confirmation hearing. Um, I just assumed you had to have a confirmation hearing. Um, and yet he says, um, you know, quite matter of factly, nope, no confirmation hearing. I just walked around and spoke to some senators. Um, so Earl Warren was not a practicing lawyer. He was the governor of California. Um, when he is appointed, he's promised the next Supreme Court seat. That sounds like affirmative action, right? He's promised that seat. <laughs> and then the seat that was vacated is in the chief justice spot. So not only does he not have a confirmation hearing and he's promised the seat, he is appointed into the highest, into the, the most powerful position on the court. Um, so that was really surprising to learn. I didn't know that there was no code of ethics. I think we're all achingly, painfully familiar with the idea that there's no written code of ethics um, today. Um, there's. I also didn't know there's no magic to the number nine. That you know, we have had a court that is smaller. We could have a court that was larger. Um, that is, you know, th those are those. So a lot of you know this body that is literally the most powerful court in the world, the world, not just our country, the world, right? That this body is shockingly unregulated. Um, and I, I think that we've we've kind of counted on them being ethical people and we've given them so much of the benefit of the doubt. And I think sadly, we might need something stronger than that. So the, those were some of the things that were the most surprising to you. Yeah. And what, one thing you note in the, in the, um, in the series is that the, you know, as the, court has taken increasingly, you know, sort of strident uh, decisions that are in, you know, in basically opposition to the majority of public opinion on abortion rights, say, on, on uh, a number of issues, their, their own approval ratings have gone down. And you mentioned the, you know, the, the lack of a code of ethics. I mean, right now there, there are several justices who are, have, you know, are in the news for accepting trips, you know, the, you know, for, from people who have business before the court, uh, you know, things that are just no brainers, you know, the, things that could get you disbarred uh, from uh, or impeached, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a non Supreme Court role. Um, other justices or other uh judges in the federal court system are subject to a legal code of ethics, just but they aren't. Um, was there anyone who you talked to in your in your research? I'm sure people all have their different ideas, but the, everybody seemed, whether wherever they were on the political spectrum, they all seemed concerned about what you're talking about, that the, the court standing is sinking uh, in the public eye at the time that it has more control and influence over us than ever. What were some of the things that you heard about people about what could happen? I mean, like, what what is the most likely way that this goes? Are we gonna are people gonna be able to get a better Supreme Court? Are they gonna are, are they gonna be able to lift themselves out of what is kind of a morass right now? Or you know, what what were some of the things that people were saying about that? What can what can the Supreme Court do to do some repair damage to its reputation? Yeah. Um you know, we did really make a concerted effort to speak to people who are not only experts um, on Supreme Court jurisprudence and history, but also across the political spectrum. So Judge Griffith um, from the D.C. Circuit, who was much more on the conservative side, um, John Bash, who was a clerk for Justice Scalia, Ted Olson, who was on the more conservative side, um, argued Bush v. Gore for soon to become President Bush. Um, and all of them are concerned, and they are concerned um, for really good reasons. Um, 
we all have a respect and a reverence for this court that has given shape to our, you know, our country. Um, and I think what all of them are seeing is, it's just as you said, there's a certain amount of politics we expect to be mixed up into the stew that is this system. And the politics isn't supposed to be your thing. It's just supposed to be part of the thing. And now that balance seems terribly, terribly um, out of whack. It seems out of balance. Um, and so I think people, but you know, lawyers, we are institutionalists, you know, we're famously worried about, um, you can't just, you know, swing a hammer at a system that's been in place for hundreds of years and not worry about radical changes. Um, but I think, uh, I think that the court currently is polling at something like 28% of, of Americans have confidence in the court. That is, that is it's, not it's just a, appalling. It's dangerous because it's getting close to Congress's approval ratings. <laughs> <laughs> it's that bad. It's that bad. <laughs> that bad. They drop a few more points. Um, so, you know, um, you know, we, we kind of like have to do more than wring our hands because, you know, and that's the, um, the, the trailer that we have, which is very dramatic, but is, is meant to be dramatic. It's meant to grab your attention. And Amanda Hollis Brusky, um, who writes uh, very in-depth about the Federalist Society and about Leonard Leo, um, is why obey? The court has no army. It has no power of the purse. It has uh, our, our voluntary willingness to obey its decisions as a body politic. And if we do not respect the decisions that are coming from the court, why would we obey those decisions? And that is really like foundationally important. Um, so, um, so I think that even people like wherever you are in the politics are thinking we might need to be thinking outside of the box here. Um, we might be pushed to, to be deciding. So there are things like you could increase the number of justices we certainly could have a code of ethics. There is literally no reason not to have a code of ethics, you know. Um, so I, I think we're going to see more and more pressure um, or some more substantive um, addressing of how the court behaves. Um, and I think that that calls for that are only going to increase. We're about a week away from the court's new term. And so we're going to have a lot more attention. And that's, that's why we're premiering the series uh, at that time. Yeah, I mean, the timing could not be better. I mean, we've got another very consequential uh, Supreme Court term. They're they're all consequential now. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's kind of uh, dizzying to sort of keep up with it. Um, um, and you know, just the number of the number of cases that we've seen, whether it's you know striking down affirmative action in the university system, you know, striking down Roe versus Wade. I mean, these. I, I admire your ability to actually get that into the last episode or so because I, I love the visual where you have the composite of the of the judges. You know, they're they're sort of their school day photo. You know, of, of where where you go back in in time and you see the the composition uh, of the court change. And I mean, again, the fifties saw Brown versus Board of Education, and the sixties saw you know the um, you know the Miranda, and the and the seventies saw Roe versus Wade. I mean. But we, it just feels accelerated, and there's so much that has happened in the last few years. And yet again, people are 
people are now paying attention in a way that they may not have before. So having this before the first, uh, you know, uh, Monday in October, uh, which is when the Supreme Court's term starts, is is a uh, is a nice uh, it's a nice way to to launch the current Supreme Court term. Uh, I hope so. You know, um, you know something that, that um, I think Linda Greenhouse uh, uh, said in the report to the New York Times, and she's now at Yale, um, is we literally saw you know with January six, we saw what happens when a sitting president decides not to obey. And what if we have a Supreme Court that has to rule on, you know, something similar? What would this court do? And so we need to be thinking about that before we're in that situation. I don't know that any of us, I mean, can you imagine if the Supreme Court sided with an insurrectionist? It's sadly not beyond our imagination. So like, this is really important stuff. Um, and I, I wanted to give people, um, you know, some kind of context for what they're seeing and understanding not only about where we came from, but that we have survived. The system has survived. And like you said, there's a period of calm. And that period of calm comes right after Bush v. Gore. It comes right after a very explosive decision where the Supreme Court um, steps in and it feels to people like maybe the court overstepped. Maybe they shouldn't have stopped the count. Maybe they should have just let the electoral process work. And so after that, we get this period where it's kind of a center-right court, but you don't know what a Justice Kennedy's going to do. You don't know, you know what some of the justices are going to do. And that's kind of as it should be. Um, people should feel hope that the least powerful people are going to be listened to. Um, and, and, you know, that, that feels right to us. Well, Don, thank you so much for talking about Deadlocked. Uh, it's it's on Showtime right now. People can watch uh, this uh, heading into the uh, to to the Supreme Court premiere. Um, and uh, I, not not to use not to trivialize it by using like Monday Night Football type of uh, tropes, but it is this is a big deal. Um, it, it it's uh, it, it's always been a big deal. Now people, I think, are realizing it and. Uh, good luck uh, with your uh, the the rest of your time uh, talking about the the show. I know you'll be in uh, um, doing doing some more interviews, and uh, I I look forward to to seeing the, the the reactions on it because I think it's uh it, it said it's a it's a real service to people who don't really necessarily know the kind of depth that you go into with the court. So good luck with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here, and good luck to you tonight. <laughs>